would you say if I were to tell you that it was possible for a man to turn into a werewolf? I'd say I was Little Red Riding Order. <laughs> like scary movies? Uh-huh. What's your favorite scary movie? Well, hello, and welcome to Queer for Fear, the quarantine edition. So, as all of you know, we are in the middle of a global pandemic due to that lovely, terrible COVID-19. And so, David and I have been unable to be together in the same space to do a normal episode recording for Queer for Fear. So instead, we thought we would take this time to present the new tainted version of Queer for Fear. So we will be recording separate views of our focus for today. So I get to start and open the episode and David will join in in about 15 minutes or so with his viewpoints on the selected movie for today. So this episode is all about the 2014 movie, As Above, So Below. So I get to be the As Above section for the movie, and I will be talking about what I like about the film and the crew and the cast and all of that aspect of it. And then David will be the So Below and focus more on his take and his connections with the material. So we hope that you all enjoy this new way that we're trying to still make our show and we hope that as things start to change in the near future, we'll be able to be back together in a space soon to record with each other. Um, but for now, enjoy as above, so below. So a little bit about this movie. This movie came out, like I said, in 2014. Um, and it was a found footage film that was produced by Legendary Pictures and Universal's smaller studio, um, directed by John Eric Doddle, um, or Doodle, I guess. I don't know how to pronounce the name, because I'm special, and uh, co-written by his brother. Um, so they've also done Quarantine, um, the found footage remake of Wreck with Jennifer Carpenter, um, as well as the M. Night Shyamalan-produced uh, movie Devil about the people trapped in an elevator. Um, so they were very good with the found footage aspect of it up until this point. Um, and so this movie is a um, found footage-style documentary crew um, tropey setup uh, where they're going to explore the catacombs of Paris. Um, so it's about a... Um, archaeologist named Scarlet who is on the search for stuff and is on the hunt for things and so goes around and tries to find the um, Nicholas Flamel Sorcerer's Stone. Um, and then a whole bunch of chaos ensues and scares and everything else which I'm going to talk about. Um, so I, I just wanted to start with the directors. Again, they've lived in this found footage world up until that point for a while. Um, whether you could say successfully or unsuccessfully is up to you. I've personally never been a massive fan of the found footage. Um, 
you know, when Cloverfield came out, that was sort of the start of that trend, um, because it had, you know, been tried in Blair Witch Project and never really caught on, and then Cloverfield happened, and all of a sudden it was a boom, and tons of people were doing it. You know, Warner Brothers had the failed Chernobyl Diaries, um, and there was, you know, the Spanish Wreck franchise that then um, Screen Gems tried to do with uh, Quarantine, and, um, you know, the newest Blair Witch that came out several years ago. Um, and so it's, it's always been something that I, I felt like was extremely trope ridden. Um, as long as it had a purpose, I felt like it could work, but most of the time it always seemed so tacked on to ideas, um, that it, it just never really executed as something worth wild. Um, so I wasn't really a big fan of it. I mean, I loved the Blair Witch Project, but that was just because, you know, part of that is it's the Blair Witch Project. Um, and then this was it's just something else entirely. And so when I went in to watch As Above, So Below, and I had not seen it in theaters, I had rented it when it came out. And then once it got, like, marked down on sale, I bought the Blu-ray of it. And so it wasn't really something that I had um, like actively sought out at the time. I had saw, seen the trailers and the really gripping poster of the red and the black Eiffel Towers that were mirror images of each other. So you, you know, as above, so below and all of that. But I never really um, actively sought out the, the movie. And then I was actually pleasantly surprised um, when I watched it the first time. Um... I would not necessarily say that it was the scariest movie that I watched. Um, I've seen way, way worse than I've, you know, in terms of scares, I've seen much lower quality movies that have gotten even a higher polish than this one had. And so I was actually pleasantly surprised. Um, but it wasn't until, like, I, I haven't watched it in a while. And then David was like, hey, we should do this for the podcast. And I was like, that would be fun. And I have to say, I really enjoyed um, watching it now, now that the found footage craze has sort of died down. I really enjoyed it. I think that um, it's really smartly directed. Uh, it does have a lot of tropes, um, you know, that come with the found footage. You know, when you start to think about the camera and what they're able to film, it doesn't make sense at all. Um, but I think the idea of it really holds up well. Um, they really did, turns out, shoot in the catacombs of Paris. Like, they had permission from Paris authorities. And no, that's not something that I got just from reading the Wikipedia page. Like, I actually did a research and I watched the, like, three-minute behind-the-scenes that's included on the Blu-ray, as well as interviews that I found on YouTube and articles and everything else. But they really did shoot in the catacombs of Paris, um, which I think makes that experience so much cooler uh, just because it is something that was real and they were able to film in it and create that tangible stuff because um, most of the time you know like the 2015 2016 movie the pyramid um, that came out where it was you know found footage of a newly discovered pyramid in Egypt that just was the most ludicrous over the top and it was found footage for no reason and just turned into the CGI bloodbath at the end and so that's what I, you know, going back to rewatch this, I was like, oh my God, is this what this is going to be like? And it, and it wasn't, um, as it turns out. Uh, you know, the scares build um, 
so it's not like it doesn't immediately throw you in. Is there disturbing images to keep you entertained? Yes, um, you know, similar to The Haunting of Hill House on Netflix, there's ghosts layered throughout the start of this movie. Um, you're never quite clear of, you know, what they're seeing, if it's real, if it's not. Um, and I think the the building to the final few minutes of the movie is really well earned. Um, and pays off well. Do I agree with everything in it? No. Um, I, I definitely do think, you know, the characters are formulaic and tropey and typical. Um, you know, you have scares that are not necessarily worth it. Um, you're never quite clear if they pass through hell or what, you know, the journey is about, but it's really more about the Philosopher's Stone uh, being discovered by Nicholas Flamel and like the journey below the catacombs of Paris um, that really make it interesting um, and I, I think keep the film moving and paced well and, and moving along. Um, in terms of what else I like, I think, you know, you have this sort of high-tech contrast of it's a very well put together movie that obviously you know a lot of care had to be taken into making it but it's designed to make it look so low res and low key um and so you know the cameras bounce around and cut in and out and you have that typical like I said earlier found footage um style to it that's just you know motion sickness inducing in a way and also just strains credibility to a degree on your storytelling um but it does take place in paris france so you get a lot of that like paris nightclub feel at the start when they're trying to search for things and um the entrance that they use to go into the catacombs is an actual like way to get into them it's not recognized as one of the official entrances so it is something that you know tourists would get in trouble for doing but it is a real one um and then it just, you know, once they get to the catacombs, it starts and it's just, they go further into the tunnels. The tunnels are flooded. They have to crawl over real bones. And you get this really great claustrophobic um, feel that I think heightens the movie. I think if it wasn't shot the way it was and it didn't have the claustrophobic feel to it, it would not be as effective as it was now um, with those aspects of it. Just because you were, you're watching this and you're going through all of this and it's just so... So, um, just, like, intense and, like, you just feel suffocated and tight in that. And I, it's been a long time since I've seen a movie that made me feel claustrophobic. Um, I have to say, I don't think it's since Neil Marshall's The Descent, um, which is a truly terrifying film on multiple accounts, that I've, I've felt something that was that sort of claustrophobic and intense and just like you're right there in it and you feel trapped too and hard to breathe and it was just a truly fun adventure um with like the cast of this movie by the time you're done you do you do well remembering anybody's name besides Scarlet not really um but that's a, you know, that's the script's fault and like the constructions of the movie to make it a lean, mean, you know, 93 minutes. So under that with credits, you're like maybe an hour and 20 something minutes at the most. And then you get to the ending itself. So you go through this claustrophobic journey, you know, fears of each of the main characters is sort of realized and displayed as they have to combat and come out on the other side. And 
there's this whole aspect of the stone and Nicholas Flamel and what that means, which is something that I'm going to let David touch upon. Um, but I, I want to talk about the ending here is because the ending really did prove to be something different from what most horror movie tropes or most horror movies in general tend to, to have. Um, and I'm going to be honest, the first time I watched it, I was like, oh, this is going to end with like them getting trapped in hell and like this whole recording is going to be there. Like, you know, it was discovered in the catacombs and it's like a documentary and like pulling a Cloverfield, they were never heard from again. This is a file from blah, blah, blah. And that actually wasn't the case. Um, so going into spoiler territory here, if you haven't seen the movie or if you care, pause or jump um, about five minutes until you can get to David's segment. But, you know, m multiple people survived this film. Um, so Scarlet makes it, and then there's two male characters that make it, where just like I felt, I'm not even going to bother to name names because it's, they're all interchangeable and it doesn't matter. Um, so you, you do have a final survivor, but unlike most slashers or horror tropes, you don't have one final girl. You just have this one girl who went through and turned out to be a really big badass through this whole thing, and so she makes it with the rest of the like two of the other guys um they escape the catacombs and crawl out onto a street in paris and then it just ends and then the movie just stops so you never really get a resolution like they made it through but you have no idea what the documentary or like why they're recording what it's for um there's no real like it just ends so you don't get the satisfaction of the story very similar to that horrible movie the devil inside where they you know try to direct you to go to a website to like finish figuring out the movie um and it did you know it was it's great in the moment because you're like oh yeah cool like a horror movie ended on a positive happy note but then it really just there's no resolution once you start thinking about it further and you're like who's filming what's the purpose of the filming like why like you go through this whole movie and you understand why they're filming but there's no indication of what it all is put together and so that's where this starts to fall apart like you're super happy and then all of a sudden you get these like really fancy and credit mirror sequences that like take the title as above so below and really drain it for all it's worth so you're like watching this low-tech like mildly minimally budgeted movie and then you get these end credits that are artistic and pretty and beautiful and you're like none of this really goes so it really you know for me the more I think about it it tends to fall apart once you get out of that experience but it, it was nice to see this movie especially in 2014 in like a height of you know this style of filmmaking and uh, pressure from studios to keep churning out movies that could lead to sequels or churning out horror content um to, to end on such a positive, happy sort of note where there is more than one survivor. There's not really a setup for a sequel. Like, it's not going to go anywhere else. Like, it's just you have this 93-minute film ride, and that's just where you are. And, you know, you go through the catacombs of Paris, and, you know, they really film there, and it's claustrophobic, and it's tight, and you get, you know, some scares, some blood, lots of death, um some creepy cult action and then a, a really cool incorporation of Nicholas Flamel and the Philosopher's Stone and so both you know 
there's many common interpretations of the stone, whether it's a spiritual aspect or a metaphysical aspect, or if it's a literal stone. And so this movie really does toy with those ideas. And I think that that's part of what David loves so much about this. And so I'm going to sort of back away from that as above sort of glossy viewpoint of the movie itself. And I'll let David take over from here to show those um, below the surface meanings that he has with this movie. So David, whenever you're ready, you can have at it. And thank you, Sean. I will take it from here. For those just joining us, we are actually recording this separately and piecing the recordings together. So if there's any sort of variation in sound, that is why. So one of us might sound clearer than the other, but we have endeavored to make it as smooth as possible. So as above, so below. Sean's great explanation about um, all of the movie theory stuff that he is always so great at. Um, really actually informs what I want to talk about. So this is a great movie for me to talk about from my little interest. Uh, sorcery, all things magical, mystical, has it all in this movie. Um, it is interesting how they incorporated the magical elements into this movie because it wasn't, I think, meant to be the main focus of the film, but uh, it, it was a tool that was kind of used to further the plot along. And I actually really respect that about horror movies, especially, that can use concepts of magic as a plot vehicle without it being extremely overbearing. So not only that, but I also respect that the movie uh, really did its research with um, systems of what we call Western magic and esotericism, along with um, conceptual ideas of alchemy. So if you are at all versed even a little bit in those topics, you would have probably picked up on at least a few things. So getting right into it, um, the essential mystical plot of this movie is based on our protagonist Scarlet's desperate search for meaning in things outside herself, right? So she is a researcher, yes, but she is an explorer who finds life meaning in making discoveries, but you see kind of early on that it is almost an unhealthy addiction for her, right? So she is putting herself in situations where um, she's in danger and she doesn't really mind putting other people in danger, right? So in the beginning, when she was in the Middle East and she took her friend down into those tunnels, um, you know, she really wasn't encouraging him to, you know, go, go on, I can do this by myself. Like, you, you know, you shouldn't be here. The guy had to be like, look, I have a family. I got to peace out before these caves explode. So she's pretty selfish. Um, and then we find that even more um, when she is talking to her um, linguist fixer-upper friend guy up in the clock tower. Uh, we find out that she left him in a foreign country where he sat in jail. Um, and he somehow naively 
um, came along with her on this next journey, got in, into even more trouble. So we can see this toxic obsession with focusing on things outside of herself, which I think is actually um, an under-realized aspect of this film. So and when I read a lot of uh, reviews about this film, I really see people focusing on um, uh, the isolation aspects, which, yes, big factor of it. This movie did that pretty well. Um, uh, and also the kind of unease that comes with uh, being around this group of people who, for the most part, you don't really know, except who she, you know, she had her one friend with who she previously let to rot in prison. So uh, other than him, um, most of these people were brand new, just helping her, her along, people in Paris. So anyways, um, as they go down into the catacombs, you start to see all of these interesting symbols that reveal this kind of esoteric aspect to the plot more and more. Um, so... Uh, you obviously the see the for foreboding um, signs in Latin above the doorways that are you know telling you beware this is the realm of the dead etc etc. Uh, th those are actually uh, real uh, facades within many of the entrances of of the catacombs in Paris, um, and I'm very excited to see them because I'm going there on my honeymoon in December, COVID allowing. <laughs> so I'm looking forward to see those myself. Um, but as Sean mentioned, uh, they did film this movie in, in the catacombs, so I thought it was really cool that they highlighted um, the kind of creepy, um, esoteric, philosophical um, pieces of art and descriptions in the catacombs, because it really lent an air of authenticity to the film. So one of the interesting pieces uh, that they did show was this painted image on the wall um, and, and you'll recognize this because it was kind of one of the only um, classically painted images that they came across. Everything else was kind of like rough graffiti or, you know, little like signs and symbols etched here and there. But it was this kind of um, like life-size image of this old bearded dude. He looked like he was kind of placed upon a star, David. Um, that is the Seal of Solomon the King, Solomon in his role as the sorcerer. Um, and he is placed on the uh, upward and inverted triangles. So that's actually a very uh, famous piece of art in magic. Um, it's an illustration that comes from the book Transcendental Magic by occultist Eliphas Levy, um, who printed that book in 1896. And he was actually a French magician, so I thought it was perfect that they used that there. Um, that image uh, actually, even though they didn't really talk about this aspect too much, they, they focused just on the whole like as above, so below aspect, um, is this idea of the macrocosm and the microcosm of the world. So the idea of the macrocosm is that um, it, it is the vast expanse of space on a large scale, everything kind of playing on in these big universal themes, uh, everything outside of us. And then there's the microcosm, which is the inverse. So it is 
this idea that everything is happening in this huge macrocosmic uh, aspect outside of you, but at the same time that is also playing out within you internally in a microcosmic scale. So you can c- consider it like um, you are um, in a, a beautiful uh, field of flowers and you're, you can actually see and experience that expanse of flowers before you, all of that. Um, but if you were to take a little tiny terrarium and plant, you know, a single seed from each variant of flower and some of the, the grass seeds within that, and you, and you grew those up, and you, ha- you kind of have your own little microcosmic um, visual of that flower field before you. That, that's, a, that's a very overly simplistic way of explaining it, but I only have 15 minutes, so there you go. But I wanted to point out the microcosm, macrocosm thing in this film because uh, that is an understated aspect of something that played out in the movie that they didn't really explain that much, which is fine because I'm here to explain it for you. So uh, something that really got them in trouble in the movie a lot was they found that as they went further... Um, up as they were trying to escape, they actually found that they were going further down. So that they were experiencing a microcosmic reality of the first part of their journey, which was this kind of larger macrocosm of the whole expanse of the catacombs cave network. It made sense. Um, There were so many options, but as they were leaving, there was really only one way to go. They had to go through to get out. So very interesting. Uh, and of course you can, you can talk a lot <laughs> about the, the psychological implications of that, right? So everything that was kind of happening to them or haunting them on the outside was happening deeply embedded inside their own heads. So their brain was playing out that, um, microcosmic haunting, I guess you could say. So the other big aspect of this is the Philosopher's Stone, which was Scarlet's quest. This uh, They went into the catacombs to find the Philosopher's Stone, um, also known as the Sorcerer's Stone. So if you have read Harry Potter and the Sorcerer's Stone, you will already be familiar with the stone. Um, I love what they actually did with the stone in this film because, uh, as you saw, it initially seemed to have some sort of healing power to it. Um, but that power kind of went away after it was discovered. And then later on, you found that Scarlet realized that she needed to return the stone and then come back and try again. So when she did come back, uh, of, uh, of course, her, her healing work was successful. Um, she, she kind of believed that she could do it and she was able to do it. That leaves a lot of questions open. Um, did having interaction with the stone and being the one to seize it from its wall grant her this internal ability or suck, sucking out the power of the stone, rendering the stone basically just useless and now, and now this power is within her? That could be, but I would argue it's probably a little deeper than that. I would say that the power that she experienced actually came from the journey of discovering the stone, and the stone itself was pretty inconsequential. Um, And that kind of 
uh, I feel is validated based on the fact that she had to kind of internally review her struggle to get it and, you know, focus her mind and her intentions to make that healing work happen. Um, so, you know, it's a, it's a very kind of Glinda message of, you know, you had the power all along. Um, but the, the stone, again, is just kind of consequential to something that plays out in an even bigger or macrocosmic, if you will, sense. And that is this idea of the hero's journey, which if anyone has, um, you know, taken a, a college, maybe even high school mythology class, you'd be familiar with the hero's journey uh, developed by Joseph Candle, Campbell and used in a lot of films and books. Um, the idea is that uh, every uh, hero goes on this quest that has very similar or repetitive themes. And I, I thought that uh, the film's um, showcase of Scarlet's hero's journey was very relevant. And um, I guess you could say on the nose, but but not in a bad way. And I don't think it's too on the nose, actually, because I really haven't seen any other reviews discuss her whole hero's journey aspect. So uh, I... Hey, I'm not going to go over the, the whole thing because that would take forever and it would be a whole show with both of us. Um, but but essentially there is a call to action. There's some sort of um, aid that she is given to help. So in this case, the camera crew, um, there is this idea of passing through a threshold or a door and beginning this kind of underworld journey. Uh, and in this case in the film, it actually is a real literal <laughs> underworld journey, <laughs> just going into a giant a pit or a grave and then into hell, quote unquote. Um, but the deepest aspect of the hero's journey is always the abyss or sinking down into the lowest parts of yourself uh, that are possible to reach. And sinking deep down into this abyss is essential for the process of death and rebirth. Um, and I actually think that they directly illustrated this death and rebirth process when she fell into the blood pool uh, as she was running back, uh, you know, when she was in, in the tunnels by herself, uh, that was kind of the only, uh, as Sean pointed out, the only truly bloody scene in the film for the most part, um, where someone was kind of totally saturated with blood. I think that that was actually very intentional. So she was basically baptized in blood uh, and experienced a rebirth or a transformation after that. Um, and of course she, uh, returns the stone, realizes what she has to do. She experiences atonement, which is one of the hero's journeys, uh, stages. Um, typically at this point they are given a, a gift, um, or some sort of blessing in order to finally crawl out, um, and get back to safety, you know, reach their goal, all of that. Um, in this case, that gift for Scarlet and her crew was knowledge of of the self so uh scarlet received all these insights partially thanks to her discovery of the stone and its real symbolism she figured out that uh based on this kind of macrocosmic microcosmic journey she realized oh hey you know up is down and down is up and that's how we're gonna find our way out um and i don't think that 
that was just kind of a simplistic logical solution as some have claimed you know some have said like oh so does this mean if they realize that down is up and up is down early on that you know they would have just found their way through everything fine well no i think that the catacombs are probably kind of acting as some sort of twisting labyrinth and you know it would have kind of fucked them over at some point anyways so again they needed to experience that that mystical underworld journey and come out of it on the other side um so yeah that that's kind of my crash course in <laughs> film occult esoteric symbolism of this film um i would be curious to hear from people if uh, whether you have any background in magical philosophy or not um how you found those concepts were they too on the nose were they not enough did you find that that those uh, themes were present but you didn't know enough about it to get it for the plot I actually did hear from a couple people that after I explained all this esoteric um, stuff from the film to them they were like oh actually that makes me feel like I can enjoy the film more but because it had to be explained that's like kind of a film faux pas um so I don't know I am from the side that um obviously knows about it and really enjoys that made me really geek out about the film that's one of the things I loved about it the most. So uh, as always, let us know. Give us your feedback. Again, we hope that this kind of split take thing we're doing is only temporary, but it's actually kind of interesting. Although, um, as Sean will also tell you, we really work best when we are playing off each other. You know, having our drinks, <laughs> chilling, and talking about all of this stuff together in our most ridiculous way possible. So We'll get back to that soon, but in a while, I hope we could tide you over with this little tidbit. <laughs>